Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Well, uh, I have the privilege of coming on and doing week six of First Peter. Um, really excited to do so. But before we get into this, can we all come together and say a word of prayer as we come to God? Uh, with humility of heart to learn from His Holy Word. Now, I want to first of all thank all of you who are tuning in live and are really setting this time aside as sacred to participate in community, but not only that, for you to come together with all of God's people, this community that you're committed to, to seek God, to hear from His Word. You know, this time is not merely a time of an exchange of information. If it was so, you could just tune in later and it would be all the same. But we believe that this time is sacred. This time is a time that us as a community, as a people called the city, are setting apart intentionally for God and for the sake of the people on the right and our left, our community, to come together. And so I want to thank you for keeping this a mainstay even in the midst of uncertain times. And I so look forward uh, for the day where we're all coming back together again uh, to see each other in person. And that day is coming soon. But let's go to God in prayer, shall we? Lord, we thank you for this day. It is indeed the day that you have made and we will rejoice and be glad in it. This day, this moment, this time is sustained by your divine grace, O God. We stand here, we live, we breathe. All that we have, all that we possess comes from you, almighty God. This is the day that you have made. And God, we rejoice at the work of your hands O Lord. And God, we ask, even as we look at your holy scriptures this morning, that you'll speak to us. We look at your scriptures this day, not just as the textbooks or something that we reference. We look at your scriptures as the fountain, the source of life itself. And God, we ask, Spirit, won't you illuminate this time? Let the words of scripture, let this ink on pages come to life and give us a rima word, a word revealed, a word that speaks of you, O God, a word that speaks into our very life, our season, our moment this day. God, we thank you for this time. Bless it. Speak to us. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen, amen. Now, uh, let's read through the teaching text this morning from 1 Peter chapter 5. We have, it's a pretty chunky passage, but I believe it will speak to you this day. So let us read from 1 Peter 5, starting in verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, 
be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. You know, uh, this text is so rich, so, so, so rich. You know, I think of that line that we just read, that we have brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering. People who are suffering that are part of our family. We are to look upon them as brothers and sisters. That word used there, Adelphoi, the family of God, is this intense, rich, relational word. And so when we see people around the world, when we read, uh, uh, see, uh, uh, look at the news cycle, when you read of the news reports and we see our brothers and sisters suffering, it should move something in our heart. And today, I don't know about you, but my heart is grieved for all that we're seeing in the nations of the world today. And Psalms 2 tells us this, that the nations rage, but God, He laughs on His throne. Not, he's not laughing at their pain, He's not laughing at their suffering, but He's laughing at the schemes of the enemy. We have a God who is Lord over all. He is the King over over the, the storms that we see in life, and we can trust in Him. It's such a rich passage that we are going into today, but that's, that's not a theme or, that I would like to explore this morning. You know, I, let me be honest, you know, I have done many messages, and uh, this message, honestly, is the one that I'm looking forward to the least, because it is so challenging. There are so many themes in there. Um, and and it, it, this text, uh, if, if I can be honest with you, um, for many people, uh, in my life, and, and myself included, have seen this text abused and twisted in order to facilitate personal gain. But I think this text, you know, it's so rich. It's to be something seriously and weightily considered for all who are in leadership, for all who belong to this community of faith called the church. And my sermon title this morning is really interesting. Along with the theme of hope, you know, we talk about like exiles and hope. We talk about a peculiar hope, a provocative hope. My sermon title this morning is this, The Leader You Hope For. <laughs> the Leader You Hope For. Really interesting term, really interesting talk, uh, but I hope that it speaks to you this morning. Now, we read through a bunch of, passage, uh, bunch of scriptures uh, earlier, but uh, we're just going to focus this morning on the text from verses 1 to verse 6, which really talks a lot about church leadership, particularly the word uh, elder is used. And we're going to do some work on that this morning. Now, it's interesting that the verses that we read, uh, particularly verse 1 to 6, is sandwiched between two really interesting paragraphs, right? It's sandwiched in between uh, these two uh, really, really profound exhortations that Peter offers to the church. The first paragraph that precedes uh, verses 1 to 6, uh, we read in chapter 4, the end of chapter 4. You know, if you read it uh, in another translation, it will say, so, right, the elders, right, I exhort you. So if you were to do Bible study and you see the word so, you will immediately reference to uh, the text that you read earlier. And in chapter 4, right, Peter exhorts the church on the theme of suffering. He says to them, like, in the midst of suffering, you are to stay true to course. You are to hold on to your faith. You are to suffer, even though for a little while you will be rewarded. You are to suffer. Right? And so suffering for Peter's readers 
it will do us good to know this, that it isn't just a conceptual kind of suffering, an ethereal kind of suffering. It was a very real, present reality for Peter's readers, right? Peter likely wrote uh, this text uh, in between AD 62 to 63, just as the persecutions of Christians under Roman Emperor Nero was just ramping up. Now, Nero, he would devise grotesque executions for the Christians. It was said that he would cover them in tar and have them pinned onto poles uh, in his garden and light, him, light Christians up and to light up his dinner parties. He was just an evil, evil, evil man. Uh, it was also said that he would put Christians in animal skins and toss them out into arenas such that they may be devoured and torn apart by wild animals. That was Nero, and that was the context to which this was written. This is Peter's readers. They were in the midst of deep, intense, very, very real persecution. Essentially, in that day, to profess Christ as Lord meant to embrace a horrific death. That was the audience to which Peter was writing this to. And so it's with this level of intense persecution and displacement by the Roman Empire that Peter writes this, the verses that we just read. And the second exhortation that we read following verse 6 is, is this uh, call to uh, be sober and alert because we have an enemy and adversary in the devil. In verse 8, it says this, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Really, really interesting use of language, isn't it, right? It's interesting because here we have the very real threat of Nero, right? The very real threat of being put in animal skins, tossed into arena to be devoured by animals. And here Peter is saying that, though that's a very real threat, there is an invisible threat that is just as real. We have an adversary. We have an enemy that is against us, that is plotting against us, that is seeking to devour our souls in the midst of this dark, dark time. In the Greek word, the devil, the word used here is the word diabolos, which is where we get the word diabolical, right? And in the Greek, uh, in the form of verbal, verbal root, it means this, it means to slander, it means to accuse, and more accurately, the devil, that word would translate to the slanderer or the accuser. Devil is one of the many names used by Jesus and New Testament writers for a creature that we read all about all through the library of Scripture, right? Jesus calls him the Satan, the tempter, the evil one, the deceiver, the serpent of old. Some people like to use the, the original script to, to, and, and when they read it, they were like, he's Hasatan, you know. Uh, but there's so many names that Jesus calls him. Jesus calls him the ruler of this world. And the word ruler is archon in the Greek, and it's a political term to describe the highest position in a government. And so to Jesus, this creature, the devil, is the most powerful and influential creature in the world. And it's very real. To Jesus, the devil isn't just a myth or some cartoonish character in a red jumpsuit with a pitchfork that stands on his shoulder. To Jesus, the devil is an invisible but very real intelligence that is behind so much of the evil in which we see in our world today. And yet, tragically, Many of us fail to recognize this reality that we have an enemy that is plotting against us today. The devil is really real. 
You know, we joke about it in the broadcast room sometimes when the screen crashed. We're like, ah, spiritual warfare. We joke about it, we laugh, you know, but, but a bit, bit of it, we're like, yeah, you know, I think there's something plotting against us, man. Everything was working well. The moment we start the stream at 10, boom. It seems that something's just warring against our worship, right? Come on, Axel. Um, A.W. Tozer, that, that brilliant writer once said that many Christians view this world as a playground rather than a battleground. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was to convince the world that he doesn't exist. We have a very real adversary. In the midst of like very real threats, very real persecution, very real suffering, Peter is saying that this evil is animated by an invisible, intelligent force, the devil. And so Peter is saying this, the devil is an opportunist, folks. As things get hard, as darkness looms, as suffering intensifies, he comes seeking to devour the souls of men. And so Peter's closing address here, we gather, is aimed at helping Christians who are living as a cultural minority in the midst of host culture, who are living persecuted in the midst of deep darkness, to hold on to their faith, to not have the enemy, this very real intelligence, lay a foothold on their life. This is what you are to do. And this is verses 1 to 6 right, sandwiched between the inevitability of suffering and the reality of spiritual warfare, Peter offers us this instruction as a hopeful resistance against the enemy. Come on. And the themes he explores in this short text that we just read from verses 1 to 6 are these two themes, godly leadership and then mutual submission and humility. Many of us love these words, don't we, right? If we were to get a tattoo tomorrow, we'd be like, godly leadership, mature, mutual submission and humility. We're like, yeah, none of you, right? You know, even as I bring up the word godly leadership, you're like, why is this guy talking about leadership, huh? What is his agenda? What is his motive? I am suspicious. But Peter seems to suggest that the way we stand firm in the midst of trying times, the way we resist the enemy is when we embrace these traits, these values, have these aspects represented in our life. Godly leadership, mutual submission, and humility. These are traits of a resilient community of faith. We need this. And so this morning, I've divided my message into two parts. The first, I will talk about the kind of leaders that God is looking for, the kind of leaders that God is looking for us to raise in the midst of community. And the next part is this, our response of humility. First, let's chat about godly leadership, shall we? Uh, godly leadership, fun, fun, fun subject. Uh, first off, I want to encourage you, do not check out in this moment if you might think I'm not a leader or this is very church leadership stuff, it doesn't really apply to me, this is kind of specific to pastors, this is just not for me. I would like to make a case here to say this, that what Peter is saying through his text is actually applicable to leaders of every kind. Right? If you are a Christian and you are a leader, whether at home or in an organization, these principles, these values speak to you as well because this is very much a part of Christian conduct. Peter, what Peter is saying can be looked upon as right conduct, as appropriate conduct for Christians in leadership, for Christians who are seeking to influence the world in which they live in. The values he proposes can be expanded beyond the scope of church leadership to leadership in general, beyond the scope of leadership in general to how we ought to live life on the earth in a compelling manner. Now, I don't know about you. This is a talk 
or this is a letter written to people in suffering, right? So you imagine yourself in that scenario. I am suffering. Things are just really, really hard and dark. And then Peter offers you a talk on church governance. How many of you feel that that is just poorly placed or oddly placed to say the least? least? One must wonder why Peter saw it fitting to offer this address to the leaders of his day, as well as call for members of the community of faith to submit to those very leaders. Now, up to this point, Peter's been focusing on how to live in the midst of suffering, how to maintain hope in Christ in the midst of suffering, sacralization, and hostility to the gospel. And you might see this as a weird conclusion to the letter. It's a strange ending. But Peter, he's making a case here that in order for the church to stand, last, and flourish, it needs to have godly leadership. Godly leadership. Because he knows that when you know, the, the flock isn't shepherded, when we live without honour for the gifts, the calling and appointments of God, one by one, the people of God will fall and are devoured by the evil one. Now, it does us good to realise that one of the biggest generational shifts that we observe in our world today is the shift in sources of authority. Where previous generations are trusted in institutions, in positions of power, due to current abuses, and appropriate criticisms, it is observed really that the millennial generation primarily trusts in personal narrative as authoritative. In fact, holding a belief in any kind of authority which dictates not only one's personal choices but what is absolute truth in our world is considered by most as absolutely dangerous. It is considered as a kind of sin in our modern world. This notion is so per pervasive that Oxford Dictionaries denoted post-truth as a 2016 word of the year, folks. The dictionary defines post-truth as relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. And haven't we seen this prevalent and exploited en masse in our world today? John Mark Comer, uh, author and pastor, once said this, we have been led to believe that the self is sacrosanct, and that is, uh, that is a word meaning sacred. Just as in an earlier time it was never thought fitting to deny God, now it seems never right to deny oneself. Slogans abound, follow your heart, be true to yourself, don't let anyone tell you what to do. All of this is the orthodoxy of our culture. Take up your cross, is now heresy. The defining spirit of our age is self-determination, not submission. Anything that enhances my individual liberty to do as I please is good. And anything that encumbers me and limits my ability to do as I please is bad. To submit to another is utterly outrageous. This is our culture. Not to mention, leadership failures and bad experiences have left many with a distaste in their mouth for any sort of hierarchy. We tend to wrap ourselves around a cocoon of sus suspicion. We are posturally defiant until proven otherwise. We are just suspicious of leaders, of authority structures of any kind. We are, self we, we are suspicious. And often it's well-founded. But is that the way of the kingdom? Is that the best that we can offer? A hermeneutic of suspicion? Or are we called to participate and in doing so redeem what scripture offers to us as a means of grace and blessing? Now, even though our culture 
yearns for autonomy. At the same time, it aches for good leadership. We are all looking for someone to follow, to take reference from, to show us the way to a good life. We long for someone to give us a compelling picture of the future that we can align ourselves to and follow. The question that plagues many of us is this. Who can I trust to lead me? Who can I trust to care for me? Who can I hand myself over to? And here in this text, Peter gives us a picture of good, godly leadership that both satisfies the human longing and is a means of grace. I define godly spiritual leadership as such. Godly spiritual leadership is a means of grace that God has extended to us so that the body may be blessed and the people of God empowered to resist the enemy. It is a means of grace. Now, a question that I hear often uh, in many circles and are part of, and uh, in, even in our church is this, you know, what is a church? Or more specifically, you know, uh, what is to be the expression of a church? Or what does church mean to me? Now, we know the word used for church in the scripture is the word ecclesia, which means the called out and sent out ones. And so it's very much an identity that we are to capture. We are distinct, exiles in the world, called to be set apart for God's purposes. That is the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones. But if we were to be faithful in reading the entire library of scripture, we know that the church is not just an identity to capture. It is, a, it is very much an institution that God has ordained. It is a community that has a structure to it. That is the church. It has leaders. It has leaders in which Christ vests his authority to. And these leaders are ultimately subject to Christ as the head of the church. That is the church. And so this question of what does the church mean to me is both a good and a bad question. It's both a, a question that has strong implications but has fallacies to it. It's good when it's thought of as how can I live out this identity as a church in our world. But it should also be considered as how do I belong and how do I submit to this institution that God has ordained in our world. How do I submit to godly leadership? And so, I know, very long introduction, classic Andre. Let us spend some time going through the text. Starting in verse 1. So, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. Now, the word used for elder is the Greek word presbyterios. Familiar sounding because that's where we get the word presbyterian from. It, is, it refers to those who have authority in the church. These are mature, experienced Christians charged with leading the local churches. And so the word elder does not so much denote age, but it denotes wisdom and maturity and authority vested. Notice here that this is not a text that describes how to pick who leads, but rather a text that instructs those who are already in leadership. Now, Peter first off begins by defining his relationship to the elders, which serves as the basis of uh, this exhortation. Peter calls himself a fellow elder. A fellow elder. I, Peter, am a fellow elder. Now, this is a statement of modesty in many ways because Peter is an apostle. He holds a higher ranking, a higher office, but he, you know, in, in some sense, uh, you know, modesty, uh, you know, uh, identifies himself with the elders to which he's writing to. And some would argue that Peter in this text is not condescending to their level, but is more likely elevating the dignity, the specialness of this ministry of being a leader in the church. And he says this, as an elder, I am a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. He says, I am a witness. 
That word witness, as we uh, heard about last week, is that word material, which is where we get the word martyr from. To be a witness in that day meant that you're not just a casual observer standing from a distance, but you actually bore witness to Christ at the risk of martyrdom. That's so true in Peter's day, right? As we just heard earlier, to profess Christ meant to embrace a horrific death. But to be a witness is not just someone who does a thing. To be a witness implied that you are close enough to see. And so a leader, as defined by Peter, is someone who knows Christ intimately and is willing to suffer for his sake. This is a qualification of leadership where the Christian community is concerned. In doing so, we follow the example of Jesus. Next, he says this, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Notice here, he uses the word among you, shepherd the flock of God among you. Before that, he says, I exhort the elders among you. He uses the word among you twice and implies someone who is present and not distant. He, is, he or she is among the people. It's a leader who is faithfully present and not distant. Now, this leader is present and called by God to lead. To do what? It is to shepherd the flock of God. To shepherd meant to feed, tend, and keep sheep. The imagery and idea of shepherding is anew. We see it all through the Bible. As Exodus just read earlier, Psalm 23, God is my shepherd, I shall not want. The prophets often spoke about God shepherding the people of Israel. Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. This analogy, this picture, this imagery isn't lost on us. Now, it's interesting that Peter uses this phrase and this imagery to describe leadership in the church. This word of shepherding, of caring for sheep, meant so much to Peter. We know of Peter's failure where he denies Christ. And in John 21, we read of Jesus restoring Peter. He says, Peter, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, three times. To Peter, this is his whole identity and mission in life. Christ has tasked me to feed his sheep. And now in this moment, in this letter, just as Christ has tasked me to feed his sheep, now I offer this same instruction to you as a form of inheritance of the richness of the relationship I have with Jesus. You, elders, receive this instruction that comes from Christ himself. Feed his sheep. Shepherd the flock of God. Now I think of the role I get to play. And I think of all the leaders in our church that fulfill this same role. Receiving of this great inheritance. Receiving of this great instruction. To lead means to shepherd God's flock. To feed his sheep. What an utter privilege. Now as the church has evolved over time, the expectations and cultural needs of a church has morphed right, to adapt in light of our culture and unique needs. Today a pastor may be thought of as a person that fulfills multiple roles. right? CEO, executive director, program director, community organizer, whatever have you. But where Peter and I believe Jesus is concerned, the primary role of a spiritual leader in the context of a community of faith, is to be a shepherd. To be a shepherd. There are many roles and responsibilities to be fulfilled, but to spiritually lead is to shepherd. No two ways about it. To hold any authority in the church is for that purpose, such that the sheep may be fed. And I once heard it said that shepherds should smell like sheep. 
The word exercise, oversight, or watch over is a compound word in Greek, and it means to look over, and more interestingly, it means to show at and fitting concern. I love that word because it goes far beyond general concern. It implies a, a greater specificity. You know your sheep intimately, and you're able to offer this apt, fitting concern for them. A leader is someone who both intimately knows God and knows his or her sheep. This is the qualifications, what it means to be a leader, as we glean from First Peter. Now, moving on, Peter goes on to a list in contrasting pairs, the specific instances of what shepherding ought to involve and not involve. He provides a checklist of proper and improper pastoral motives. He says this, we ought to do this, we ought to lead, we ought to shepherd God's flock, we ought to care for God's people, not under compulsion, but willingly, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering, but being examples. How confronting is this list? How confronting is this list? The problems leaders in his day faced I'd like to put it to you, are essentially no different from the ones that are faced today by contemporary pastors and leaders. Admittedly, their society offered fewer temptations than what we face today. Nonetheless, the essential temptations to greed, to power, to control have hardly changed, only their manifestations. And what this text offers then is a list of three problems of motivation that modern leaders and pastors need to look over and examine their hearts and ask themselves, you know, I've come up with a list of questions to ask myself, right? As a church leader, am I motivated to serve in the church because I have to or because I want to? As a church leader, am I motivated to serve in the church because of gain or because of my enthusiasm for ministry? And lastly, as a church leader, am I motivated to serve in the church because of my desire for power, for control, for influence, for prestige, or because of the impact my life makes on others? Now, it'll do me good to make this point. Notice here that Peter is not saying that these traits are disqualifiers for ministry. Instead, he says that those who are already in authority, who are called by God to lead, you are to lead in this manner. It's not as though you wake up one day and you go, oh, I'm like, not really feeling it for ministry. Disqualified, not a leader anymore. If that was the case, you would have many, many, many pastors uh, that will rotate through. Do you agree? Mr. Dan, Pastor Daniel, yes, he agrees, just in case you don't, never hear. Uh, so what is Peter doing here? He's highlighting, here are areas of temptations and weaknesses for where we need the grace of God and the Spirit's empowerment as leaders. Here are pitfalls, here are things you are prone to, here are ways you'll be tempted. You need God's grace, you need God's Spirit to sustain you, even as a leader. As a leader, you're not immune, you're not invincible, and invulnerable, you need God's spirit, you need grace, you need community. There will be days you absolutely hate leading. And that's where we ask God to give us a willing heart. There will be days where we will be tempted to serve so that we may gain prestige, power, and influence. And that's where we ask God to give us a purity of heart. There will be days we are tempted to control and rule over others. That's where we ask God to give us a posture of humility and meekness toward one another. And in verse 4, it says this, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Notice here that Jesus himself is described as a shepherd. When we lead, when we shepherd, we follow 
and the example of Christ. And that speaks into our leadership. Our leadership has to be a reflection of Christ-like character and virtues. We lead as though Christ would. When we lead, we are to ask ourselves the question, how would Christ lead if he were in this situation? Our shepherding is an extension of the ministry of the chief shepherd himself. And all of us shepherds, we are accountable to the chief shepherd. That means that this paradigm of pastor being CEO and all of you congregation being stakeholders and shareholders, it doesn't work because the, the pastor is ultimately accountable to the chief shepherd. To the chief shepherd. Amen? Now, you might be wondering. In my notes here, I write, why did I spend the last 15 minutes talking to you about church leadership? But actually, I did half an hour. So why did I spend the last half an hour talking to you about church leadership? Andre is very verbose, as they say. First off, why am I doing this? First off, it's a means of accountability to you. This is the kind of leader you should hope for. This is the kind of leader you should be following. This is the kind of leader you should long for. And let me be the first to admit in front of all of you, I am not there yet. I am not there yet. There is still a long way to go. But this is who I hope and aspire to be. Not just for your sake, but for my sake. Secondly, if you aspire to be a leader, this is the vision of leadership to capture. Regardless of what your context is, I believe Peter's instruction can be applied to whatever leadership role you find yourself in as a boss, manager, employer, does your leadership reflect Christ? Thirdly, it is to highlight the reality that there are temptations and challenges unique to church leadership. We are to pray. We are to be diligent in guarding, in caring, in praying for those who are in leadership and authority over our lives. Now hear me in saying this, that just as godly leadership can facilitate blessing in the community, ungodly leaders can bring about destructions to whole communities. We see this all through scripture. Ungodly kings being raised up only to bring nations into ruin. Why do we need to pray for leaders? It's for that fact. Godly leaders, leaders who are rooted and grounded in Christ are conduits of His blessing. And lastly, I'd like to say this, that even though what I've described, leadership, it comes at a cost so great, there's an emotional cost, a spiritual cost, at times even a financial cost. Regardless of what we've heard, I want to say this, I want to call for many of you in our community to respond to God in obedience and bring your leadership to our church. We gather here that in the midst of uncertain, trying times, Peter calls the church to be postured in humility and submission, but he also calls for leaders to be raised up in their midst. Why do we need leaders? not to fulfill a functional need, not so that we can have our programming needs fulfilled, not so that we can have many, many groups. We need leaders because that is a form of spiritual resistance against the evil one. We need shepherds to be raised up in the midst of communities such that we may stand in the midst of uncertain times. We need leaders. It is not just a functional need, it is a spiritual need. And we live in such dire times. We need leaders to rise up. We see it all through the Bible in history, don't we? God calling and appointing and raising leaders to shepherd and guide His people into deliverance. We are to respond to what we've just heard by praying for God 
to raise up leaders in our midst. In Jeremiah chapter 3, we read of God speaking to Jeremiah about Israel's unfaithfulness. In verse 11, he says this, The Lord said to me, Faithless Israel is more righteous than unfaithful Judah. Go, proclaim this message toward the north. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will frown on you no longer, for I am faithful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt. You have rebelled against the Lord your God. You have scattered your favors to foreign gods under every spreading tree, and you have not obeyed me, declares the Lord. And so we see here a nation in spiritual ruin on the cusp of destruction. And then God says this in verse 14, Return, faithless people, declares the Lord. For I am your husband, I will choose you, one from a town and two from a clan, and bring you to Zion. Verse 15, Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart, who will lead you with knowledge and understanding. What an amazing promise of Scripture. In the midst of the spiritual decline and apathy and darkness, God in His mercy and kindness will raise up shepherds to lead and guide His people back to Him. We need leaders, not for our functional programming need, but because our spiritual lives are at stake. You know, I have so much to go through, but we'll have to chop it halfway. But I remember uh, in my 20s, um, I was in ministry school already, and I was just struggling, really, uh, if I can be honest with you, with my spiritual life. You know, I was in the midst of such a great spiritual environment, but, you know, so much of the dysfunction the sin, the temptation that I kept su suppressed with activity, with just, you know, doing a lot of stuff, it all came to the fore, you know, when I went to school and I had all this space and time. And I remember struggling, struggling, struggling so much. And at that point in time, you know, I was just really blessed and through, you know, really divine orchestration. I was mentored by an elderly couple. They were in their 50s and 60s and they were, they were, they were, they were you know, present in my life and uh, really, really offered... Uh, really shepherding to me, you know, they were, they were gracious and kind that way. And I remember one day coming to them and said, you know, I've been struggling for all these months and, and I know that this has been present for years and I just can't get out of it. I need help. And what they said was, you know, they, they gave me some advice, but more than the advice, they said this, Andre, we are going to pray for you every single day until you get a breakthrough. And I don't know what happened. It was as though, right, when I said yes to their leadership, I came under a fountain of grace, of love, of covering, of protection. And, you know, I, I know this, is, this sounds too good to be true, but from that moment on, I had my breakthrough and I struggled no longer. When I entered into acceptance through authenticity and vulnerability, yes, but through submission to someone else's leadership, I received blessing. I heard one pastor describe uh, the marital submission, uh, a marital submission as such. Husbands are called to lay down their, their lives for their wives, and wives are called to let them do it. I'll say that again. A pastor wants to describe marital submission as such. Husbands are called to lay down their lives for their wives, and wives are called to let them do it, to step into that covering, that leadership, such that they may be blessed, not suppressed, not pushed down, not abused, not thought of as lesser or demeaned, but such that they may be blessed. Blessed, that is biblical submission. That is what happens when godly leaders are raised up and when we in humility posture ourselves under their leadership, we receive a blessing. We receive a blessing. To close off, let me read to you um, 
a text from James chapter 4. It says this in God's word. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. What a profound text. It says that in our submission to God and his ways, though it seems small, though it seems inconsequential, in doing so, we resist the devil. And when we submit ourselves to God, when we adopt a posture of humility, we draw near to God and God draws near to us. Haven't we read earlier that God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to those who are humble? Isn't that such a confronting passage? We think of pride as this side kind of temptation, as a byproduct of personality. But God says that I oppose the proud. I oppose the proud. Isn't that so confronting that our prideful, willful arrogance, our commitment to individualism and to not be submitted to anything, to have full autonomy, that pride, God opposes. And we remove ourselves from God's blessing. But God says that those who are humble and those who embrace submission those who are willing to go, hey, you know, I don't have it all figured out. I need someone else. I need a leader of my life such that I may be covered. I don't have the agency even in all myself to make things happen, to stay true to cause. I need leaders. Those people in humility and submission are blessed and will stand in the last days. Thank God, in His mercy, He gives us the antidote to pride. Humility. Humility. What if the way we resist the devil is not just through intercessory prayer? What if the way we resist the devil is through a heart of humility, a posture of submission towards leadership, and in doing so, we wage war against the spirit of our age, that of pride, and experience the promise of James, God drawing near to us, His very presence. God is opposed to the proud, and He's drawn to the humble and meek. Amen. Shall we stand uh, in this place and wherever you're at, I'd love for you to respond in this time as well. You know, folks, the ultimate tragedy of pride is that it positions our lives in opposition to God. We need to realize that, that pride is not just a side temptation or byproduct personality we are to just come to terms with. It is in very much a foothold of the devil and we need to come back to humility. And the way we practice this humility is by saying, I need leaders, I need people to cover me. I need people in my life that I'm submitted to, that I intentionally posture myself to learn to be blessed by. You know, the word submission uh, in its original wording, what seems to suggest this, it is to intentionally order one's lives around or submitted to another. The word submission doesn't imply that you are forced or oppressed or suppressed or pushed down. It means, it implies so much agency. You actually have a role to play, a part to play. Now, if you, you know, in, in any way feel like you're not pastor, you're not cared for, you're not mentored for, that, is, that might be a question to ask yourself. How have you submitted? How have you intentionally ordered and postured your life 
in order to receive that blessing. Now, I have some closing questions for you to reflect upon even as we close off this time. Closing questions are such. What anxieties do you feel when the topic of submission is race? And how can you cast those anxieties on God? This is to lead us. Over whom do you lead? How can you clothe yourself in humility toward that person? This might be contextualized in the context of your marriage, your workplace, as a boss, as an employer. How can you, in humility, lead the people under your care? The Bible tells us that we are to clothe ourselves in humility toward one another. All of you are to do it, not just those who follow. Next question is this, who leads you? How can you clothe yourself in humility toward that person? Who is an authority over you? Who is, you know, who, who has leadership over your life? And this could be your pastors, your life group leaders, even your employers. How can I adopt a posture of humility even to those who are under, you know, my charge, uh, who, who, are, who, who lead me in the context of workplace? Next question is this, are you called to be a shepherd of God's flock and have not been faithful? Has God called you to lead? Has God called you to bear you know, the, the, the weight of authority in church and have you not been faithful? Last thing is this, on the subject of submission. What does submission look like in this season of your life? What does it look like to grow in submission? If we really believe that this is the way we resist the devil and combat our impulse towards prideful arrogance, what does it mean to submit myself what does it mean to grow in submission? How can I intentionally posture myself and begin to do so? These are questions I'd like to leave with you. You can take a screenshot and spend some time this week just pondering and thinking and allowing the Spirit to breathe life, to bring about correction if needed, to bring about direction if needed in your life. And so let us close in a word of prayer as we come back to God in worship. God, first of all, we want to respond to your word this morning. Lord, we want to be faithful in obeying every letter, every punctuation mark in your word. Lord, we don't want to be people who approach your word with a buffet mentality, just picking and choosing the parts that are appealing, that are, you know, that makes sense to us. God, we want to respond to your word this morning. God, in your word, you say we, we, we need leaders. We need people over our lives to care for us, to shepherd us so that we may be blessed. And Lord, we want to respond to that this day. God, for all of us, even those who are in leadership this day, we need shepherds. We need people to speak into our lives. So God, we ask that you give us the grace and humility to intentionally begin to do so. And God, we also pray for our community that in light of all that we see in our world, in light of uh, the growing need in our world and in our community, we ask, oh God, by your mercy, by your grace, through the Holy Spirit, raise leaders in our community. Raise up leaders in our community. Stir the hearts of men and women in our community that they may embrace the call of God and bring their leadership to the table. Lord, we pray that our church will reflect that which is written in Ephesians, where many enter into their calling, their destiny, their office, such that the body may be blessed, such that the body may be matured. Lord, we pray that that will be reality in our community. Lord, stir the hearts of your people to embrace the call of God, even though it comes at so great a cost. It is worth it in the end. Because Jesus, you are our example. You who are gentle and kind and meek and humble. You who are the good shepherd. We want to follow in your way. We want to follow in your example this day. 
raise up shepherds in our midst. Oh God, in your name we pray. Amen.